0: Well open your Bibles, uh, please, to Second Samuel chapter two. Second Samuel chapter two. And uh, let's look together at what will be a lengthy passage, and I just want you to be patient with me as we read this together and focus in on God's word. We're talking about kingdom opposition tonight. Kingdom opposition as we begin Second uh, Samuel and of course continuing in the whole theme of 1st and 2nd Samuel. All right, 2nd Samuel chapter 2 and verse number 1. It happened uh, after this that David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, where shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household, and they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness, because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commanded a commander of Saul's army took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahinahem. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Azurites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of ish the son of Saul, went out from Mahanahem to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruai, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. So they arose and went over by number 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side And they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a very fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zeruah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Azahel. And Azahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. So Asahel pursued Abner, and in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Asahel? And he answered, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and lay hold on one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. So Abner said again to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear so that the spear came out his back. And he fell down there and died on the spot. And so it was that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died, they stood still. Joab and Abishai, however, pursued Abner. And the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Amma, which is before Gia, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took their stand on top of a hill. And Abner called to Joab and said, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long? Will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brothers? And Joab said, as God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brothers. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all of Bithron, and they came to Mahanahem. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing of David's servants, 19 men, and Asael. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men, 360 men who died. Then they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron. At daybreak, as we study these Old Testament narrative, I, I, I think it's important for us to once again be reminded that we are not simply studying historical facts as we journey through these chapters. I mean, we are studying history, but we aren't just studying history. No matter where we are in the Scriptures, we understand that first, all of God's word is inspired. And it details for us how God fulfilled his promise of bringing a Savior into the world. And how it is that God is establishing his perfect kingdom in Jesus Christ. Additionally, we understand the Bible is not a book about us. It is a book about God. The scriptures, that is, reveal God to us. We're not to look into the Bible and see us necessarily, we are to look into the Bible and see God. So it's our aim together, every time that we come together, to have an encounter with God. That's why we meet, that's why we gather. We come as a church to have an encounter with God. And the way that we meet with God is through the scriptures. And I, I say all of that to, to help us understand that when you come to stories like this in history, instead of thinking, well, what in the world does that have to do with me today? It doesn't always have to do with you today. It has to do with you having an encounter with God. It's about understanding God and His plan and how He fulfilled His purposes in this world. But I think you'll be surprised to find out that even in a passage as old as this one, that there are things for us to gather. Now, Saul, as we looked at last Wednesday, is dead. For more than 10 years, David has been living as a fugitive. Ever since the day that Samuel anointed David to be the next king of Israel, Saul has engaged in every opportunity possible to absolutely destroy David. So David's been on the run for his life. But now that difficult part of David's life has come to an end. Saul, the people's chosen king, is dead. Which means it's time now for David, God's chosen king, to take his God-ordained place on the throne of Israel. And this transition is of utmost significance because it's through David's kingdom that God is going to introduce to the world the kingdom that God is establishing in Jesus And I think it's important that we understand that, that it is through David's kingdom that God is going to introduce to the world the kingdom that he is establishing in Jesus. Remember how the gospel of Matthew begins? Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so as we look at David's rightful place on the throne, we understand that in this transition, God is also solidifying his purpose of establishing a kingdom in Jesus Christ. This is the where we have come. Second Samuel chapter two begins the reign of God's chosen king. the reign of David. Three three points that we want to note here as we look at these 32 verses. Number one, David is anointed king, all right? David is anointed king. This covers verses 1 through 4. Again, 2 Samuel 2 marks a notable change in things for David. For example, five times in the first three verses we see a reference to David going up. All right, just just note these for a moment. Look at verse 1. Shall I go up? David asked in prayer. The Lord said, here's the second one, go up. David said then, where shall I go up? Verse 2. So David went up there. Verse 3. And David brought up the men who were with him. It's interesting, isn't it? Five times we see this phrase, David going up. And I think it certainly is speaking to the higher elevation of Judah. When you compare Judah with Ziglag, which is where David has been these days waiting. But as we learn in Bible study, repetition is always significant. Now I think you've been Bible studies long enough to get that. Whenever we see repetition in the Bible, there is something that is being said, a message that is being Conveyed, And the writer here, the narrator, is telling us something. And that is David is moving up. He's moving on up, if you will, if you want to get that tune in your head. He's moving up to the kingship, to the kingship. But notice with me how David makes no move anywhere without seeking direction from God first. Did you notice that in our reading a moment ago? Verse 1, look at it again. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? I think this is a very important observation because David is known for at least a dozen years, if not longer, some would estimate somewhere around 15 years, that he's the next anointed king of Israel. Samuel's already come to him privately and has anointed him to be so. The only obstacle is Saul. That was the only thing that had kept David from assuming the throne already. But now Saul is out of the way. And he's not out of the way because of David's manipulation. No, David has put himself far away from any accusation of such. No, Saul is now out of the way by the hand of the Lord. So it would have been easy. For David to naturally get his crew together and march right up to Judah without asking God anything. He is the rightful heir to the throne. He has already been anointed such. He knows that he is God's appointed, God's ordained, God's anointed king of Israel. Let's go. Saul's dead. Get the crew together. We're on our way to Judah. But once again, we see here the integrity and humility and spiritual discernment of David. Because he doesn't for one moment presume upon God's plan. No, he prays for God's plan. He wants God to tell him where to go. He wants God to tell him when to to go, Even though he already knew what the next step for his life was, he wasn't there to venture out on that until God had told him to move. So in David's mind, I'm staying right here in Ziglag until God tells me otherwise. Calvin said it like this in his sermons on First and Second Samuel, and particularly this passage. He said, although he, David, was on the way to becoming king, he still knew he could err seriously if God did not guide him. So, what did David do here? He inquired of the Lord. He prayed. He wanted to know, God, where do you want me to go? When do you want me to go? But not only that, I, I wrote down here secondly in my notes that not only did David inquire of the Lord, but David listened to what the Lord had to say. Now, I think sometimes there is a huge gap between our inquiring of the Lord and our actual listening to what he has to say to us. We want to make ourselves feel better spiritually by going to God in prayer over these directives in our lives, over his guidance, but we're not so in tune with actually hearing what he has to say. It could be that our mind's already made up. And so we want to... Pass over whatever decision is in front of us, spiritualizing, well, we prayed about it. Well, that's great that you prayed about it, but did you listen? Did you listen to what God had to say? You see, David's not only praying, inquiring of the Lord, he is listening to what the Lord had to say. Look at it again in verse 1. And the Lord said to him, go up. Go up. David said, shall I go up? God says go up. Now let's, let's not run ahead of God in our lives. Sometimes we do that, don't we? We're not listening to what he's saying even though we are praying. We're not listening to what he's saying even though we're praying. I was putting this together. I couldn't help but think of a recent situation in my own life as my wife and I were praying over the adoption of Jaden, and I I don't know if I've ever shared this portion of it publicly with you, but my wife was farther along than I was in this process whenever we were first asked about adoption. Now Jaden was a surprise to us, but we had been informed of this possibility months before he surprised us that Sunday night when we had not made a decision yet. And the reason why we had not made a decision yet was not because of her. It was because of me. I was scared. There were some tense moments in mine and Kathleen's relationship leading up to Jaden coming. I remember one night getting off the phone at a FaceTime with my mom and dad. And mom and dad... Kathleen had already arranged the meeting with the birth mom. And as soon as we got off, I looked at Kathleen and said, I do not want to go. (laughs) It was that same night after she went to bed. And we had been praying. I had been praying. She had been praying. I decided I was going to pray again. Lord, what do you want me to do about this? I'm concerned about my health. I'm concerned about the finances. You know, everything that a wart worries about, I'm worrying about. I, I've tried in my leadership of our home never to make a de- major decision in our home without God giving me a verse of Scripture about that. That was something that both of our parents taught us early on in our marriage. Her dad is a big proponent of that. It was counsel. You never make a major decision unless God gives you a verse about it. So I decided that night I had not read my proverb of the day. Some of you read a proverb every day based upon the chapter correlating with the date. All right, so today uh, the 28th, right? And today the 28th There's the 27th? All right, so you'd read Proverbs 27 because it's the day of 27. I have not done Proverbs like this in a while, but... Uh, that that was what I was doing there in that particular month. It just so happened it was on the twenty second of the month. I opened my Bible to Proverbs 22, and I pray sincerely. God, please show me. It seems like everybody else knows what to do, but me. What should I do? Do you want me to adopt this baby? And I start reading in Proverbs twenty two, and some of you already know where I'm going with Proverbs twenty two. I get to verse six. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I get down a little bit further, it talks about a father and a son. A little bit further about a father and son relationship again. And there's what I do I read that, and I close my Bible and say, That's ah, just a coincidence. <laughs> Come on, God, that's not what you're saying. It just so happens it's the 22nd of the month, and I, I'm praying, but what's the problem? I wasn't listening. I wasn't listening. God had to make it a surprise for me to listen. And maybe maybe you're like me in those cases. It's not that you're not praying, it's that you're not listening. You're not listening. David's listening. He's not running ahead of God. Unlike us at times. Instead of praying, we're planning. We're scheming, we're thinking, but we're not praying. There are too many things in our life that we do prayerlessly, prayerlessly. From the seemingly trivial decisions to the big ones. We have to get into the habit of inquiring and listening to the Lord. I kind of tongue-in-cheek tonight, uh, someone had texted Kathleen and said they couldn't be here to participate in the worship program. And and I, I jokingly said, text them back and ask them if they prayed about it. And my joking response was because this is what's fresh on my mind. Every little thing, every little thing sometimes we give it no thought concerning prayerfulness in relation to God. What does God want me to do? What does God want me to do? We've got to get in the habit of asking God, listening to God. And again, we see, we see the sincerity of David here because he wants to know specifically what God wants him to do. Look at it there in verse 1. David said, where shall I go up? All right, God told him, go up. David says, where? And again, God speaks and says, I want you to go to Hebron. And then we see, thirdly, and I wrote this down, David obeyed the Lord. David obeyed. He inquired of the Lord. He listened to the Lord. And then he obeyed the Lord. Verse 2. So David went up there. Where's there? There is the place God wanted him to go. He went up to Hebron. God had a plan for David. God had a plan for David. And I want to remind you tonight that God has a plan for you. He's mapped out your life. He has a specific plan for you. we got to seek him. we got to listen to him. We have to obey it. So David goes to Hebron. What's significance about Hebron, pastor? Well, from a worldly perspective, nothing at all. It's insignificant, a little town, a tiny little tribe in Judah. And it's here in this tiny little remote insignificant town that the kingdom of God comes. Small, tiny, insignificant. But this is how God is choosing to bring his kingdom to the world. It it parallels with what God did when he sent Jesus to Bethlehem, the little town of Bethlehem. God's kingdom is coming to a tiny, small, insignificant place. But yet Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13 that this is what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that grows and grows and grows and grows. It may start in tiny, small, and insignificant places, but God is expanding it in massive ways. Let me think about Hebrews. Hebron being a tiny little town. Bethlehem, the old little town of Bethlehem that we sing. But look now, look at the millions of people around the world who've received the gospel, who are following Jesus with their lives. Think about it in relation to our own church here. We're a tiny, little, insignificant place in Charlotte, North Carolina. One of many churches proclaiming the gospel of Jesus here. What are we among so many? We are part of the mustard seed in God's kingdom purposes that he is using to grow and expand his kingdom around the world. That's the significance of Hebron. It was just the place God chose for his kingdom to go. A reminder that the best place we can ever be is the place where God puts us down. While there, verse 4 says, that the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now remember, David was already privately anointed by Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So what happened privately has now been made public. And it was done not by seizure of the throne on David's part but by the elders of Judah approaching David to acknowledge what God had already ordained to be so. And here we have David being anointed king. That's the first thing that we see. Secondly, David shows kindness to Saul's supporters. David shows kindness to Saul's supporters. This is the verses the end of verse 4 through verse 7. So again upon David's public anointing over Judah the elders told him in verse 4 look the men of Jabesh Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. Now this you'll remember right? This was the group of men who put themselves in harm's way we, we studied this at the end of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 31 this was a group that put themselves in harm's way by traveling in the middle of the night to the town of Bethshan which was Philistine territory and they did this in order that they could take Saul's impaled body off the walls of the city and give him, Saul, and his sons a proper burial. Now, notice what David does toward this group of people who have been supporters of Saul, who who acted out kindly and courageously and loyal to Saul after his disgraceful death. The first thing we see David doing in verse 5 is David praised them for their loyal kindness to Saul. He praised them for their loyal kindness to Saul. Verse 5, he says to them, Jabesh Gilead, you are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord to Saul and have buried him. So again, David is not acting out in this sort of uh, a bombastic way of how could you support Saul. Or, no, no he, he's praising them. He's, he's showing kindness to them. He's letting them know that they have done the right thing in their loyalty to Saul. Well, he praises them. The second thing he does in verse 6 is that David prayed that God would bless them with his love and faithfulness. David prayed that God would bless them with his love and faithfulness. Look at it in verse 6. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. Kindness and truth. It's interesting. The Hebrew word for kindness here is actually the word that we translate for love in the Greek. Same thing with the word truth. The the, the word truth here is the Hebrew word that is often translated in the Greek to faithfulness. So kindness and truth works, but there's a deeper meaning here toward the grace of God. This is speaking of the all-encompassing grace of God. David is praying. He is praying that God would bless Jabesh Gilead with his grace. And his faithfulness, his love, his love. Now, what's fascinating to me is that this is a group of people who had every reason to regard David as their enemy. Because remember, they had been supporters of Saul. So David comes along and shows kindness to Saul's supporters. He shows kindness to the very ones who could have regarded David as their enemy. And how does he show them kindness? With a message of grace. Of grace. Isn't this Romans 5.8? That while we were still sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. He showed us grace. So he praised them for their kindness to Saul. He prayed that God would bless them, praying for his enemies, praying for someone else's supporters, praying that God would bless them with his love and faithfulness. And then I wrote down number three here, David proposed an invitation for them to receive God's kindness through his kingship. He proposed an invitation for them to receive God's kindness through his kingship. Verse 6, I will also repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant for your master Saul is dead and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Now, I want to say this. With all of this that David is doing, he is praising them for their kindness to Saul, him praying about God's grace and faithfulness, kindness and truth to be displayed and blessed upon their lives all of that that David is doing is with utmost sincerity he is acting out sincerely but he is also acting out politically there's a political move here he understands that the kingdom is broken He's going to need their support as he seeks to unite the kingdom together under his kingship, under his leadership. So he invites them to give him a chance. It's as if he's saying, look, you've been loyal to Saul. You can count on me. I'm going to be kind to you. I'm going to show you grace and faithfulness it's a cordial invitation it's a sincere invitation yes it has a political bent to it but it is filled with God's kindness and grace David knows exactly what he's doing and he knows what he has to do in order to bring the whole kingdom which is currently divided to a place of unity he invites them to come along and follow him you see what's happening here In David's kindness and grace, he is inviting them to give their allegiance to God's anointed king. He is inviting them to give their allegiance to God's anointed king. A king who desires to show them love and faithfulness and kindness and grace. It's a little glimpse of the gospel. You see, the story of God's redemptive work through his chosen king, Jesus Christ, it it is woven throughout the pages of God's word. And here we see a little glimpse of it, a glimpse of what David's greater and perfect son will do. He's saying to them, come and join us. Come and join us, David says to those at Jabesh Gilead. It's a tremendous question to pose even this evening as it relates to our relationship to King Jesus. Does God's King have your loyalty? Does God's King have your allegiance? God has sent His Son Jesus, the anointed King of the universe, to invite you to come to His side, to give Him a chance. To trust his love and his kindness and his faithfulness to you. Does he have your loyalty? Does he have your allegiance? You who once supported the king of this earth in terms of Satan's work. Have you turned from that to give your loyalty and allegiance to Christ? You see, David shows kindness to Saul's supporters. He's anointed king. And let me give this third one. It will be very much quicker than the first two. And that is David meets immediate opposition toward his kingship. David meets immediate opposition toward his kingship. Now, here's the thing. We don't know if Jabesh Gilead responded to David's invitation or not. We're going to be brought up one more time, but it's not in relation to this particular conversation. So we, we don't know whether or not they came to his side or went the way. But what we do know is that in the midst of all of this, opposition to David's kingship has risen. Because as David, the new anointed king, is out inviting others to join him, verse 8 says, But Abner. But Abner. The narrator is signifying a great change in events by this statement. David's been anointed. He's showing grace, love, and faithfulness to others. He's inviting them to come under his kingship. And while he's out there extending the invitation, here's Abner. Let's refresh our memories about Abner. Who is he? He's Saul's cousin. He's not only Saul's cousin, but he's his chief military commander. Somehow he survived all the stuff that happened over there on Gilboa. And he's no friend to David. In fact, he is opposed to David because he's opposed to God. That's why he's opposed to David. Follow me for a moment. He's opposed to David because he's opposed to God. For the same reason why people are opposed to Jesus. They're opposed to Jesus because they're opposed to God. He was there when Saul acknowledged that David had been chosen by God to be the next king. He knew all of this was happening. But Abner had a lot of power and influence in Israel. And so he decides he's going to oppose God's appointed king. And how is he going to do this? By making one of Saul's surviving sons king over Israel. He's going to do the exact opposite of what he knew God had ordained. Look at it here in verse 8. But Abner the son of Her, commander of Saul's army, Took Ishbosheth. I have to pause and say that one slowly. I struggle with it. I'm afraid I'm going to say something that's going to get me in trouble. He took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanahem, and he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, over all Israel. Verse 10 only the house of Judah followed David. Ish-bosheth. Now what's so special about him? Nothing. That's the point. He's a puppet. He's a puppet being used by Abner. Abner's the one running the show. Abner is the one who's going to do whatever he can to finish the job that Saul had set out to do against David. Friends, it's, it's a great reminder that there's always an enemy to God's plans. There's always an enemy to God's purposes. In this case, it was Abner. Abner doing whatever he could using whoever he must to stop God's purposes. And this move right here is the beginning of a predictable civil war between these two parties. Now I'm not going to commit any time to unfolding in detail the next 24, 24 verses. For one, I have a hard time enough pronouncing all those names once. I don't know that I can do it again. But we've already read it. So let's just summarize this initial conflict of what we read about from verse 12 all the way down to the end of the chapter. Let's summarize it. We'll conclude it and pray. So a meeting takes place, verses 12 through 17, at the pool of Gibeon between Abner and Joab. This is the first time we see Joab. Joab is the commander of David's army. Abner is most definitely the aggressor in all of this. You study these verses... It's Abner who goes to Joab. It's Abner who initiates this with Joab. Joab's not initiating. Abner is the aggressor here. And he proposes that some of his men enter into some type of competition at this pool with some of Joab's men. Abner has 12. Joab has 12. One's sitting on one side of the pool. The other one's sitting on the other side of the pool. And Abner says, Joab, let's, let's let our men Compete against one another. What kind of competition is this? As we have no idea what it was. Derek Thomas said it was a testosterone battle. His men against your men. Whatever it was intended to be, it ended in a disaster because all 24 of them are dead. Right? The 12 men of Abner, the 12 men of Joab, they enter into whatever competition it is. says they grab each other by the head and while they're grabbing each other by the head, simultaneously they're piercing each other with the spears and swords and all of them kill each other. They all die right there. The escapade solved nothing. In fact, it made things worse. Because when you get down to verses 17 through 28, a battle breaks out. Abner's troops are doing so badly in this battle that took place after that little competition that they choose to run for it. But David had three nephews, Joab, Abisha, and Azahel. And his three nephews pursued Abner and his troops. We, we, We learn in this section of verses as we read earlier that Azahel is a gifted athlete. Verse 18 describes his running ability like a Wild gazelle. My running ability is like an untamed elephant. (laughs) His is like a wild gazelle. He's running so fast after Abner that the two are in talking distance. God has gifted him with this athletic ability. He is giving them this skill, and he's using it, and he's running, he's running. He's gotten so close to Abner that they're actually talking to each other. I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that because I can't talk to anybody while I'm running. I'm just barely trying to manage my own breath. But they're having a conversation. And Abner's trying to talk Asael into turning around. But Aziel just won't have it. He keeps running, he keeps running, he keeps falling. And all of a sudden, however it happened, we don't know. If you get the the picture of a chase, it's almost as if Aziel is running so fast, he doesn't have any control over his pace. I mean, he's just running so fast that Abner all of a sudden just kind of stops, whips his spear around, and it happens so quickly that Aziel just runs right through it. I mean, mean, look at it there in your Bible. Well, we don't have time to go to it. The Bible says that the blunt of the spear went through his stomach so strongly that it pierced through the other side. I think there's a lesson here that I don't have time to get into, but let me at least just mention it. Beware lest the gifts that God has given you become the occasion of your own destruction. Hazael was gifted. The fastest runner in the troops. And yet his own giftedness, his own giftedness is what caused his destruction. He's running so fast, Abner takes a quick turnaround with his spear. Boom, he dies right there. Joab and Abisha continue pursuing after Abner until they come to a stop and consequently a standoff. Abner accuses Joab for being responsible for all that had happened that day. Joab is reminding Abner that none of it wouldn't have happened if he wouldn't have suggested a competition between the two and so they both, in verse 29, decided to retreat. We find out in the closing verses that 360 of Abner's men are now dead. 19 of Joab's men are dead, including his brother and David's nephew, Asael. This is just one conflict in what will be a long war between the north and the south, a long war between these two kingdoms those who are following David and those who are following what is frankly Abner. Now we could take time to look at who was right and who was wrong. I think there's enough blame to go around to both sides to be honest. But the writer seems to leave those things alone. The point of all of it is for us to see the hopelessness and dysfunction of the situation. It's It's much like what we experience here in our world. People trying to achieve peace and unity. And it never happening. That's how I want us to leave this for tonight. Because what we're going to discover is that the only way for Israel to be united is for them to come under the jurisdiction of their true king. And it's equally true to say this evening that the only place unity in the whole world is going to be experienced is when the world comes under one king, Jesus, God's king. So the chaos is going to continue to exist. And when we get up for more elections, there's going to be this side against that side, both problems. And they're both at fault. They're both filled with problems. They're both Joab and Abner just running around, killing each other aimlessly. And it's always going to be this way. It's always going to be this way until the world is united under one king, King Jesus. See, there's no hope of unity in this world beyond that reality. It's a good thing that this is the plan of God, by the way. And he's going to bring it to fulfillment a plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth underneath the rule of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what is pictured here in these opening scenes of David's time as king. I I close with this quote, and we'll not sing tonight. I'll just quote this, and we'll pray and be done. Uh, It's a quote by Alistair Begg, as he has uh, written on this particular chapter. He says, we press on in the awareness of the fact that our best human efforts for political unity is what he's referring to. We press on in the awareness of the fact that our best human efforts for political unity inevitably will achieve less than what we hope for. And God's work is to bring his kingdom. And when he does, then and only then will we know the peace for which each of us long. And the peace actually for which our world longs. And the unity for which our world longs is only to be found, not in a political system, but under the kingly reign of Christ. And so that's why we spend our lives, church, not asking people to come under the headship of a political system. We're asking people to unite around the kingship of Jesus Christ. Because it's under the kingship of Jesus Christ that unity will be known perfectly and for all of eternity. Let's stand together for prayer.